0: Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, LARB Editor-at-Large, Kate Wolf. and I'm joined in the studio today by my lovely co-host, Medea Ocher, LARB's Managing Editor. Hi, Kate. You look lovely, too. <laughs> Thank you. I like your shirt today. Thank you. I like yours. I mean, it's a sweater. It's a... It's, it's yeah. kind of bland. I, it's I kind was, of bland. <laughs> <laughs> I was just trying to be polite. I mean, I like Thank it. Thank you. But... No, it's
1: fine. It's just okay. a black turtleneck sweater. Hey. Okay. I'm okay revealing it to listeners.
0: That's good. Yeah. Well, here we are today. We're listening to an interview that you and Eric recorded with Mark Jacobson, who's the author of Pale Horse Rider, William Cooper, The Rise of Conspiracy and the Fall of Trust in America. That's right. You can join
1: us for that interview. It's a really fascinating book. It's about the sky, William Cooper, who is essentially a proto-Alex Jones, let's say, uh, who had a, a radio show and this huge cult book. That was is said to be one of the most read books in prisons all over the country. And, you know, Mark does a great job sort of breaking this down himself, and so I'm not going to do it, but it is one of the ways in which I think we can really explain and trace back the rise of conspiracy theories and the prevalence of conspiracies in the news today and the validation of them to a large extent. Mm. And so it's a really fascinating book and a, and a really fun conversation.
0: I heard you liked
1: Mark's Brooklyn Draw. I loved Mark's Brooklyn Draw. Um, I loved his story about ODB, who's who is, uh, uh. I, I admired. And it's just fascinating all around because William Cooper's book was a huge hit among the hip-hop community and people rapped about it and uh-huh. ODB read it and referenced it. And so it's a book that has been around for a long time that has seeped its way into our culture, I think, in a lot of different ways, and that
0: we haven't really discussed. Wow. Yeah. And now I regret not being at this interview, but I'm excited to listen to the show.
1: So All right, let's, let's do, do it. that.
2: Our guest today is Mark Jacobs. Mark is a Brooklyn-based writer and journalist known for his explorations of the seamy side of urban life and popular culture. He's a contributing editor at New York Magazine and a frequent contributor to The Village Voice, National Geographic, Natural History Magazine, Men's Journal, and a number of other publications. He joins us today to talk about his new book, Pale Horse Rider, William Cooper, The Rise of Conspiracy, and The Fall of Trust in America. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hey. Hey. Thanks for having me. Just to get started, can you explain, and I know it's very easy to get lost in the details here, but can you just give our listeners a kind of bird's eye view of who William Cooper is and maybe a little bit about his famous book, Behold a Pale Horse?
3: William Cooper was. William Cooper is no longer with us. He right, um, no longer is. He met us in an unfortunate way, but we can get to that. Right. Uh, we'll get to the shootout. Look, yeah. Bill Cooper is to the... The, head, the lead to Bill Cooper is that he basically is the inventor of modern American conspiracy thought. I'm talking about from the 1980s on, you know, conspiracies have always been around forever. But Bill Cooper is the person who generates, and I'm not going to blame him for any of this stuff because he had no idea that people like Alex Jones and stuff like that. I mean, he actually did have an idea about that, but he had no idea that things were going to turn the way they <laughs> have. Cooper was a, he was a Vietnam veteran. He was a sufferer from PTSD, no doubt about that. And he felt that the world that he, I mean, one of the transcendent moments in his life is when he got to the front lines in Vietnam after being from a military family and believing that he wanted to fight for his country. And then when he got there, he began to realize that the war was not as it was presented, and he began to feel that everything was a lie, and he just began to work from that premise. And Then he wrote Behold the Pale Horse. It came out in 1991, mm-hmm. and it's more or less, it's not a self-published book, but you couldn't be closer to self-published than it <laughs> is. It's mostly a collection of documents that he found that he thought explained the world because he felt that, What you were told and what you were shown was not really reality, which I think is a concept that most
2: people would tend to believe in these days. Just to give listeners an idea of what some of these documents were, I mean, some of them were a supposed treaty. This is one of my favorite details. A supposed treaty between Dwight D. Eisenhower and, quote-unquote, the aliens from a 1954 committee meeting, right?
3: That document is alluded to in one of Cooper's chapters of that book. But I must make it clear that by the time Cooper wrote that book and it came out, he no longer believed in that idea.
4: Okay, right.
3: That wasn't enough to make him take it out of the book, though. But uh, <laughs> <laughs>
1: so, in your book, you very thoroughly cover the various sort of foundational conspiracy theories that Cooper either, you know, really played a hand in founding or was involved in, and then sort of renounced or changed his mind and switched to a new track. And so the alien theory is, does one call it a theory? The alien (laughs) idea, (laughs) Roswell, is one of them. He's
3: really, he fills in a lot of the details of Roswell. Roswell starts (laughs) off, one of the things I found interesting about Cooper and people like him was that, I mean, Roswell was just a pretty much of a third-rate UFO sighting from the nineteen. in the late 1940s in which there was a lot of UFO sightings when that began to happen. One of the things that Cooper did was set up the narrative that later became the Roswell idea. And fundamental to this was the idea, and I'm not going to go through the whole rigmarole of this because, you know, the Talk about the sick weeds of... Uh, <laughs> but I will not navigate them for you. Um, the, uh,
1: you navigate the, uh, them very skillfully in the book, but even I, no, as that I was... was en-
3: that was enough. I think I lost a few brain cells. <laughs> but, um, the, uh, I mean, I found it fascinating. But, you know, I'm all in favor of fabulism on some level. The thing that was important about the 1954 meeting, of which also... Has Good little factoid about that is that Eisenhower, when he was supposedly meeting with the aliens, had to have an alibi about where he was, and what he claimed was that he had gone to the dentist, which is not a big deal, except when you realize that his dentist was Timothy Leary's father, right? (laughs) The inventor, you know, the famous (laughs)
4: LSD
3: guy. (laughs) So, I mean, I just think that's a fun fact. So, like. The aliens had these things that we wanted. They had this technology, you know, everything that we were in a Cold War, and we had to stay ahead of the Russians. So we wanted to buy their technology, and for that, we were going to allow them to abduct a certain number of our citizens, and we weren't going to say anything about it, and we were going to deny that they were actually in evidence. And that actually is the beginning of the first real post-World War II cover-up Mm -hmm. Before Watergate, before all this kind of stuff, Mm -hmm. before all this kind of stuff that, you know, undermined this so-called trust that Americans have in their government and basically the culture. There was the UFO thing where it was the first time that a sizable amount of the population believed in something and the government told them it wasn't true. And that was a serious eroding of trust for a lot of people that began, you know. I don't know how many people felt that way, but it was kind of a lodestone, a kind of building block in what's happened now. I
1: mean, it seems like the next sort of big step in that is the Kennedy assassination.
3: Yeah, the Kennedy assassination is is a huge thing because that's really, here's the crime of the century, I mean, the real crime of the century, witnessed by hundreds of people Mm. that were actually sitting there, standing right there, and somehow they can't figure out who did it. This is, like, astounding when you think about it because... The cops are solving murder cases every single day, right? You know, ones that seem like they you know, cold cases, That you know, in, on TV and Law and & Order. They're doing it, like, within a half an hour or an hour. You know, they're solving all these murder cases. But the murder of the president of the United States, especially that president of the United States, this man who embodied the hope and the future of the country, then to have him killed and then to have his murderer or his murderers or whoever they were get away, clean away is kind of a confidence destroying thing because I would wager that you could walk around anywhere outside your studio and ask everybody if they think that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone as supposedly in the Warren report. I don't think you find too many people that really agree with that. So you've got this thing where like, you know, I can't even figure out who killed the president. Something is up. And these are like founding myths of what you've got now, you know, where once the Internet comes into the thing and little technological additions like Photoshopping and stuff like that, and you don't have to give a real name, I mean, this stuff is just off the chart. So I wanted to trace where it all came from in the current era, you know? And Bill Cooper was the guy. I mean, he's just dead center on that.
1: That's something I wanted to ask you about. The Kennedy assassination is also how you get sucked into this. I mean, so he appears in your life now and again, and then... There's, let's say, another foundational moment where you watch the Zapruder film with the son of a friend, and that's when you really begin diving into this person and this story. Can you talk a little bit about that, your decision to go and investigate this further?
3: Oh, actually, there were two events that were key to... Because, I mean, I, I didn't really begin even writing this book until 2014, but the things that Bill Cooper was hanging around in my head for many, many years, because of these two incidents. The well, first one was the one you alluded to when a good friend of mine, a guy named Harold Conrad, died, and then his son was very anxious for me to come by his apartment and look at something. And I assumed it had to do with Harold, you know, because I didn't really know his son at the time. And what he really wanted me to show me was that he had a copy of the Zapruder film, which I I assume everybody knows what that is, which is the only document that actually in real time shows the Kennedy assassination. And at the time, it was very difficult to see the Zapruder film because it was bought with a 50-year option by the Time Life Corporation, which is the Henry Luce Corporation, who made the March of Times and March of Time and everything like that. So they had a 50-year option that they would be the only ones who were allowed to show the film. So basically... They also took a 50-year option on that life story of Marina Oswald, I must add, <laughs> which is very incriminating, if you ask me. So, like, I mean, it makes the mind wonder. So, like, it was hard to see this as a Pruda film, and the only ones that you could actually see were the ones that had been duped, like, 10, 15 times. It was almost impossible to see what was going on. But Bill Cooper had gotten a hold of one of these films, and he watched it, and he believed that the driver of the car was actually the murderer. I mean, that he supposedly, in full view of everybody else, turned around and just shot Kennedy in the head with this strange gas-powered gun. And the idea that nobody had ever mentioned this before was not a problem for Cooper, because he said that if you watch the Zapruder film enough times, you'd be able to see that it happened. Now, this is, to me, this struck me as such a kind of outlandish idea (laughs) that I never, ever forgot it, you know? I mean, actually, if you do look at the Zapruder film, And you, uh, you know, smoke a few blunts or whatever you have to do to make it get yourself in the right (laughs) frame of mind to to access this information. You can see the guy turn around, you know, and he looks like he has a gun in his hand. And, you know, okay, I I see it. It's like, where's Waldo? You know, here's the thing. So I always thought that was kind of a strange episode, you know, considering the circumstances under which I saw it. And then a couple of years later. I live in Brooklyn, which is not as gentrified then as it is now. And I was walking down the street and I saw this guy I recognized because at the time I was the music critic of Esquire magazine. Mm. So I kind of was aware of, you know, the Wu-Tang clan and, you know, the members of it and everything. And I see old dirty bastard who is a famous Wu-Tanger, O.B.B., And I recognize the guy and he's sitting there reading this book, Behold the Pale Horse. And I... I was wondering, like, what is that book he's reading? And you know, so then I went back, I found it was the same guy, William Cooper. So now, by this time, I then began to realize that William Cooper was this overweight white guy who lived on a hilltop in the remote section of Arizona. So why was, you know, a guy who was basically the Ringo star figure of the Wu-Tang Clan, which was at that time really cutting edge, you know, still is, I think, you know, reading his book? a black guy in New York. Why is he reading that book? That began this kind of like journalistic kind of like, you know, a night around kind of thing where you just sort of go like, wow, how do these things happen? You know, like how do they cross over? How does the culture produce that kind of thing? Especially after I found out that many, many rappers were reading this book. And in fact, it was the most read book in the prison system. In the New York State prison system, which is one of the worst in the country, people were reading these books, this particular book. And also, if you wanted to go into Barnes and Noble's, they never had the book on the shelf because it was the most shoplifted book in the history of Barnes and Noble that you had to buy it from behind the counter. So this sort of like stuck in my mind, you know, that sort of thing. And then later on, I mean, I just sort of felt like I'm running into these Bill Cooper things and I some kind of little light bulb went off in my journalist head and began to think that I should be more diligent about trying to find out about this. Mm -hmm. I must say, it took me so long to figure all this out that Donald Trump was elected president in the meantime, which sort of like brought things into closer closer focus. (laughs) So, My favorite review of the book so far is called the book Distressingly Timely.
1: So... uh, (laughs)
2: It is. It is distressingly timely. Very distressingly. I feel the same way. (laughs) So actually, on that note, Mark, because that was one of the connections which you deal with early in the book in terms of like the reach of someone like Bill Cooper. And one of the things that I'm wondering is kind of like now that you've gone through everything, and this is in the book also, but what makes a conspiracy theory sticky? What gives it like... What puts it into the culture, you mean? Why well, not even become, just puts uh, it into the culture, but what makes it sticky across groups? Like, you could see how, like, certain conspiracy theories would well, appeal to, like, certain groups, but it's like there's something about Cooper's Behold a Pale Horse that you tease out that it's like it seemed to really spread.
3: Well, what happens is with that book, I mean, you're dealing with a guy who's really kind of, you know, world-class, paranoid kind of personality, a guy like that, and I, I would say that I mean, I, since I'm not an African American and I've only been in jail for short periods of time, you know, for rather you know, <laughs> low level crimes <laughs> that, uh, you know, I would say that a black man who's imprisoned in the prison system would basically be a paranoid individual. And I think it's hard to live as a African American in this culture without having some degree of paranoia, justified, very well justified. Mm-hmm. paranoia. And so here's a guy like Bill Cooper who was explaining stuff like 1991, the year that Bill Cooper wrote that book in 1991, 1992, I do believe I'm not a hundred percent sure. It might be 1991, but those were the two highest murder rates in New York city. That was the crack time. That was when people were shooting each other. Everybody was going to jail. And you know, a lot of people were trying to figure out like, how did they get in this kind of crazy situation besides all the other stuff of race history in this country? So when a guy like Bill Cooper comes along, and later this idea was picked up and more or less somewhat proved by Gary Webb, the guy from the Sacramento Bee, that's saying that the CIA is running crack cocaine into the ghettos to make black people go crazy. I mean, this is a very um, compelling argument, I would assume. I mean, you know, it's something you kind of know in your heart is probably true on some level. It sounds right to me, you know, I don't know where you can come up with all the proof for it, but I mean, if you're coming up with a narrative, that seems like a compelling narrative, especially if the opposing narrative is basically the war on drugs, which is being sold by Ronald Reagan and George Bush, the first. I mean, you know, so why would you believe them? You know, <laughs> so, <laughs> these are the people that put you in jail. Well, you know, why would you believe them? Wouldn't you believe what Bill Cooper said? And I think that that's completely normal. I don't see anything weird about that at all. So, I mean, I think that when you think about things that stick, like another thing, for instance, one of the conspiracy theories that I hate the most is that we didn't land on the moon. I hate that one. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I'm looking at these things as kind of like memes or commodities. And, you know, some conspiracy theories are better than others, you know. (laughs) It's just more interesting, you know. (laughs) I mean, it's like anything. It's like a novel. (laughs) I mean, that's really what it is. Yeah, some you like, some you don't like. So, like, the We Didn't Land on the Moon idea speaks to the idea that humans are really stupid. Underneath it all, they're really stupid. They could never figure out how to go to the moon. You know, they had to get Stanley Kubrick to come in and fake this footage and all this kind of stuff. You know, I mean, Stanley Kubrick is one of the great filmmakers of all time, but they didn't really need him to fake the footage. You know, I think they actually went to the moon. So, um, (laughs) but uh, my feeling is that People are beginning to feel like, as they begin to feel more and more stupid, because Bill Cooper explains this, I think, very eloquently by talking about his car. That, like, once upon a time, he drove around in a car and he loved the way his car ran, and he could fix his car to run just the way he wanted it to. And, you know, he'd do little things that he knew how to change his own oil and do the spark plugs. He said, now he opens the hood of his car and all he can see is this gigantic computer that he has no way in hell of being able to figure out how it works. That makes you feel stupid, you know? Right. And I think that that's kind of like when it filters down, you know, you begin to, the idea that people are helpless. When you feel helpless, in other words, not an American who has constitutional rights and all kinds of stuff like that, that you feel part of a certain kind of group. When you feel helpless and kind of alone, that's when people tend to believe in conspiracy theories. You know, and I think that that's some of these, and there's no reason to say that the version of the New World Order that these people, that many people put forward with like CFR and all this kinds of, well, who would really dispute a lot of that stuff? I mean, it seems like it's it's certainly as good as the stuff I used to read in the Weekly Reader when I was I mean, I'm 70 years old, so, like, we read this Cold War propaganda and think that that was the truth. And then it became apparent that it was not the truth. So,
4: you know,
3: what was the truth? This stuff sounds as good to me as anything I might have heard from my fifth grade history teacher.
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Mark Jacobson, author of Pale Horse Rider, William Cooper, The Rise of Conspiracy and the Fall of Trust in America. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation.
2: We're back in the studio today with Kwame Anthony-Apia, the cultural critic and philosopher whose most recent book is The Lies That Bind, Rethinking Identity. He's here today to give us a book recommendation. So Kwame, what are you recommending? Well,
5: when people ask me what my favorite philosophy book is, I think I almost always say John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. Mm. And the main reason, and I teach at least one chapter of it pretty much every year <laughs> and the the main reason is because it's a very interesting articulation of a of a way of thinking about what the central questions of ethics are mm. it's a book it of course it's on liberty so it's about it's partly about political freedom but its main access to the idea of political freedom, the route in, is to think about what it is to lead a decent human life and what it is for a human life to go well, what it is to flourish, to have mm. what Aristotle called eudaimonia, which is happiness, a good life. Uh, and uh, Mill calls it well-being, having a living well. And his great thought, and it's a thought that comes out of romanticism into this, into this rather dry Englishman, is That's that, is that it's, it's making your own life that's the thing. It's actually being in charge of your own life. That's why political freedom matters. Because people have to be as he says, the best way to live is according to your own mode. Why? Just because it is your own mode. Just mm. because it's your life. And each of us has this enormous responsibility, which is we, we have a life. We we didn't choose to have a life. We were given a life, as it were, and we have to make something of it. And we are in charge. That's his main thought. Each of us is in charge of our own life. And the great the great tyrannies are the enemies of that ideal, the ideal that each person together with friends and and lovers and families is making a life in which they're in charge. It's their life. And the tyrannies can be political tyrannies, but they can also be social tyrannies. They mm. can be the tyrannies of sort of of the gossipy neighbors who are trying to push you away from doing, the, living the life you want to lead and and staring you down when they see you on the street. It doesn't have to be—it isn't just the state. If you want to live in a free society, it has to be made free not just by having free government,
2: but by all of us giving each other the freedom to make our own lives. That's a beautiful kind of pairing, it seems, of agency— and a will to diversity, right? Yes. To be one's actual self, but to permit others to be their actual yes. selves And as to well.
5: see that the reason that – what every reason that there is for me to manage my own life is a reason for you to manage your own mm. life. Uh, mm. And as I say, he's, he's a he's – you know, if you look at pictures of John Stuart Mill, he's a sort of very conventional-looking <laughs> 19th-century Englishman who, right. who was, most of his life was just a civil servant going to the India office to tell Indians what to do. But he had this uh, – he – I think inspired, as he would have said, in, as he did say in the introduction, by talking to his, his wife, who who is also a very great thinker, inspired, together they came up with this vision of the human good that places individuality and management of your own life at the center of it. As I say, it comes out of romanticism. But this is one of the great articulations of it. I've read, read it many, many times, and I still find it intensely moving.
2: John Stuart Mill's On Liberty is always a great recommendation. We've been speaking with Kwame Anthony Apia, cultural critic and philosopher, and the author most recently of The Lies That Bind Rethinking Identity. Thank you so much. Thank
5: you.
0: You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Mark Jacobson, author of Pale Horse Rider, William Cooper, The Rise of Conspiracy, and The Fall of Trust in America.
2: Mark, one of the things that I'm wondering, too, is like, how does this kind of public media savvy conspiracy theorist develop from, say, like William Cooper um, to Alex Jones? Because one of the things that at least as you're kind of reproducing the openings to his radio program that was interesting to me, or as I could see, was something of a difference, is that Cooper is actually he's offering a narrative, but he's also fomenting a kind of general distrust of all narratives in his listeners, right? He oftentimes tells them to take in, read as much as you can, listen to as much as you can, but don't trust anything, including ostensibly, I assume, himself, until you can verify it or prove it yourself, right? So there's a kind well, of way that he turns it back on the individual that I, does not seem that like somebody like Alex Jones does, right? Where he is the grand arbiter of truth.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's what you just said I would agree with, basically. Um, That's William Cooper's greatest achievement, in a way. That one phrase, read everything, talk to everybody, believe nothing until you can prove it with your own research. Mm-hmm. I mean, that—that's—that that is his real contribution to a certain kind of anti-intellectual intellectualism, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm.
4: Um,
3: and yet, uh, I mean, there's a lot of problems with that because, you know... What you're proving with your own research, unfortunately, usually tends out to be like you looked at a few uh, things on the Internet, which told you what you believed already, and then you feel like you proved it. Well, that's what I was going to say.
2: Research here should be in scare quotes. There's no real methodology here other than like bias confirmation.
3: But on the other hand, you know, if you happen to like if you follow that dictum, and you're actually ambitious, intellectually ambitious and kind of like, you know, stubborn enough you'll begin to go to the library, you'll begin to do this, you'll begin mm-hmm. to do that, things you wouldn't ordinarily have done. Like Alex Jones, the, bris- the difference between William Cooper and Alex Jones, and Alex Jones went to school on William Cooper. I mean, you know, I, I, when I was a kid, I grew up, and my mother would tell me to go to sleep because tomorrow was school, and I would stay up and listening to Murray the K or Cousin Brucey uh, on the transistor radio, and I, that would be my secret, life you know that was this great thing you know they had just just between me you know and and all these great pop songs that i liked in 1959 or something like that but alice jones is like listening to william cooper when he's a young man you know mm. he's listening to him and 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 he uh respected william cooper and the difference between the two of them is that Alex Jones is living in a completely different world than William Cooper. There's no money in this kind of stuff at one time. Oh, I
2: and see there's what no
3: you're money saying. In, And there's no money in being a conspiracy theorist in 1992. There is just this isn't, you're a nut. You know, so like, um, and uh, Alex Jones is somebody who's like, you know, I think that he tossed out a lot of his. Credibility, as specious as may be, when he threw in with the Republican Party, more or less, and then began to be a spokesman for that kind of that particular kind of politics, because it made him seem like he was just an operative, which is probably what he is. I don't know. The thing is that Cooper was a real individualist, and that was his big. He was going to do the things that he thought was right, and what he thought was right was being an American. That was his the highest possible thing that you could be is to be an American. And that means that you would follow what was in the Constitution. You would be fair. You would do all these kind of things. You know, I mean, he's a flawed guy, so he didn't always stick to this. But I think in his best sense, he really just wanted to be an American. He wanted everybody to be an American because this was the best country in the world, and this was the only way to achieve what he was always seeking, which is freedom. You know, he was a person that felt paranoid and kind of like beset and like everybody was throwing these obstacles in his way, you know. Um Mm -hmm. you know, so he went through this litany of like people that when you're looking for freedom, you're always looking for the people that are trying to keep you from getting free. Sure. And you know, so for him originally it was the people from outer space, you know, (laughs) suddenly the you know the aliens who were like, you know, somehow some devil figures. And then there were the secret societies. And then there was a whole bunch of these people, and there was the government stuff, of course. Once Waco comes along and the Randy Weaver stuff, he becomes much more political. It just becomes a lot more tragic for him that he feels the country has really gone off, you know, And, and he's actually... Sad about this. He's not happy because he sees it as a as a as a growth opportunity to be able to sell his vitamin supplements the way Alex Jones does.
4: <laughs> you know,
3: he just has a different attitude about this kind of stuff, which is the reason why I could write a whole book about him. Yeah. When I I I can't even listen to an Alex Jones show. I don't think I ever lasted the whole time through a show. I just it's boring to me. It's not interesting. So, um, but William Cooper is a kind of person who's an American seeker he's really actually trying to figure out like why the world is the way it is with his limited tools you know and that anybody has and you know but he came up with a lot of great stuff i have to say
1: i wanted to talk a little bit about i mean you you say how cooper's story sort of evolved into into tragedy and it, it seems in some ways to have begun there as well at least in what seems to be a very difficult time in in vietnam and in in coming back to the country after serving in that war but let's talk a little bit about how Cooper's story and his life ends. So he, he gives a what is now, I think, a lot, a lot of people who are Cooper followers. He talks about this on the show. He says, you know, just look out. I will be killed. And then he is.
3: Yes, he is. In fact, he's killed in the exact, almost the exact moment he predicts he will be killed and in the exact, in the exact place because he kept on saying they're going to come up here in the middle of the night at midnight and shoot me dead on my front doorstep. And that's almost exactly what happened. His death time was something like 12.05. But, you know, wow. he was pretty close. You know, so, and, it, and he did, was shot dead on his front doorstep. That's pretty impressive, I think, when you're going into, like, Nostradamus land, predict your own death and, it's, and it has a very time and very place. I mean, you know, who can do that? Yeah. Um, but uh, William Cooper's you know, he's like he's a weird amalgam of like truly American kind of. That was the reason why I was interested in him. He's like a real American personality in the sense that he's part huckster, part prophet. You know, all true believer. You know, except when it suit it doesn't suit his purposes <laughs> because he's trying to make a living. Right. I mean, you gotta you gotta always remember he's trying to make a living. He's trying to sell. He's on the radio. He's trying to pay he's trying to be this good husband after failing in several marriages. You know, that's what made it a very poignant story to me that like, you know, he wanted to be this person that he, this kind of idea of the perfect American that he set up on his radio show that he talked about all the time. And he was constantly failing in this endeavor. So, I mean, I'm not going to go into the whole book, but the thing is that like he gets in a situation in which like, He thinks the feds are going to come up there because he didn't pay his taxes. And he's on the, he's basically on the radio, the shortwave radio, which is a kind of strange, I don't know if anybody ever listened to shortwave radio, you have ever had. I mean, not not that many people listen to shortwave radio, but to listen to shortwave radio is not that easy because, you know, you could have your whole sky buddy set up and all this kind of stuff like that. But if a sunspot, you know, 93 million miles away happens to go across the sun, you're not going to get the transmission. You're going to, you're not going to be able to hear it. So like it's catch as catch can and you, which is really fantastic for a guy like William Cooper, because you shouldn't be able to get the truth from William Cooper just by pushing a preset on your radio. Right. You have to work for it, you know? <laughs> you know, you gotta, you gotta work for it. And just like, you know, I mean, if you're going to go see the guru, you got to climb a few mountains. You, you just can't like, you know, call him up.
4: Right. You know?
3: And that, <laughs> that that helps, that helps too. <laughs> see, anyhow, um, the thing about Cooper and his death is that like everybody, he basically run off everybody who cared about him I, mean, I the people I talked to out in Igor you know, one guy in particular, this guy said, there were so many people I try to keep that guy alive. So many people were trying to keep that guy alive, but he was not determined not to be alive. That's basically—he just postulated this is the way it had to end, you know. And he and he kind of maneuvered around this deck of cards that to make it come out the way it did, you know. It's a, it's really—I you know, said it a few times before. I'll say it again: it's one of the most complicated and convoluted suicide by cops that you can possibly ever imagine. And you'll have to read the book to find out why I'm saying that, because I'm not going to go through with it now. Yeah you know, he wanted the feds to come up there and, sh- and he can, and he could shoot it out with them. I assume, but they wouldn't go, they wouldn't come up there because they didn't want it. It wasn't worth it to him. They already gone. There There was already Waco. There was already Randy Ruby Ridge. You know, there was the aftermath of Oklahoma city. All these things were just horrifying events and to go up there and try to shoot it out with some guy who just didn't pay his taxes. Didn't make any sense. So Cooper was stuck up there and was, you know, broadcasting his show and, It was, he, he was searching for the final act of of this, of his performance as William Cooper. And, um, he eventually found it. It, It's kind of, I mean, I don't know. I mean, to me, William Cooper is a tragic kind of figure. And most of the people that have called me up about this book are more interested in QAnon and stuff like that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, and I'm, 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 I'm interested in that, but I mean, you know, it's, it's more like his story is so compelling for somebody, especially my age, I think it's a kind of the other side of the 60s generation. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, as somebody who didn't go to Vietnam, you know, had got a 4F, I mean, I can't even think about that without breaking out in tears. I mean, the whole thing of all those people that went there. And I'm not even talking about the Vietnamese mean, that's a whole different topic, the poor guys that I I went to high school with me that went there thinking that this was the right thing to do. And then they wound up getting killed or, Mm. you know, finding out that it was all all a bunch of crap the way William Cooper did, um, on some level. Those are the people that really had to, those are the heroes. (laughs) It seems like to me, you know, I can't even go to that wall. It's just overwhelming to me, you know, and a lot of my friends who are lefties think I'm crazy. Well, well, oh. actually,
1: on that subject, on you being crazy, <laughs> um, I, <laughs> <laughs> well,
3: I I thought it was just a regular interview. I don't know about that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I was wondering after spending so much time with the story, with with the conspiracy theories, talking to the people that Cooper had known and had worked with, did you at any? I mean, I can imagine myself doing this. Did you at any point feel yourself losing grip
3: uh, on yeah, I mean, on was, truth? Uh, uh-huh. Not that necessarily. I mean, it was a difficult book to write, you know, I've written several books and this was like, um, you know, it just meant a lot. I felt it. I felt it meant a lot because it was like, actually every day was like, you know, I sort of felt like the story was deepening. Mm -hmm. And, um, that was, you know, that increased the when you write a book, if you're an author, you know, that's why I like to stay in journalism because it's over fast, you know? Yeah. But, (laughs) but, But But, uh, You know, I mean, the tunnel vision that you developed to be able to write a book that anybody who's trying to write a book, you know, would have to do because of all the distractions all around, um, you know, that was just, it just got deeper and deeper because of, you know, I wanted to put myself in his mind and tell his story. You know, I didn't want to like, the last thing I wanted to do was to write another book about how these right wing guys are just nuts. You know, I, I, I didn't want to do that. Yeah. I hope I succeeded in in, in not doing that, and um, you know I didn't even like the you know the the, the, the subhead of the book, you know, you know, and the, uh, the, you know you begin thinking, like, well, I don't want to seem like this is some kind of Hillary apology here. This is a completely different thing, you know. So it
2: doesn't read yeah, that yeah, way. I mean, so mission accomplished. I, 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 <laughs> well, that makes me that makes me feel
3: well, feel better. Because there's no reasonable that Hillary Clinton is not a member of the Illuminati, <laughs> but uh, don't, don't quote me on that.
2: <laughs> um, okay, so Mark, just as like kind of a way of uh, wrapping this up is a question about where you see this at the current moment, right? So one of the things that, uh, you know, obviously like as we seem to be entering is some in the media and elsewhere have claimed a kind of pr- post-truth age or maybe to, t- to riff off the title of your book, a kind of post-trust age, which I think is slightly different and a kind of interesting problem. Like mm-hmm. what have you learned in writing this book about how we might navigate the kind of place that we are now?
3: Well, I would say I'm optimistic. I'm an optimist. I really am. I mean, I feel that um, I have a lot of young people who come to me and, you know, we're talking and, you know, I mean, I work for the, the Village Voice, which, by the way, is no longer functioning. So it's not yeah. true that I yeah. continue to contribute. It's very to sad. But I mean, that's just kind of part of the story. I mean, I love working at the Village Voice. I just think that people are going to get sick of this kind of stuff. They're going to get sick of, being lied to. They're going to get sick of telling lies themselves. People are going to like, you know, um, they're going to get sick of being like, you know, artificially divided for no particular reason. And I, I I actually think that things are going to get better. How that's going to happen is really not up to me because, you know, Mm. I'm going to be out of here. But um, I really do feel that that things are, that people are going to uh, overcome this kind of like (laughs) unfortunate situation we find ourselves in right now. And and because I just have a lot of faith in human nature, you know, maybe I'm crazy, but I, I I just feel that way. And I think that Bill Cooper, who was a total pessimist, you know, maybe he was hoping for that as well. And um, it's in his big quote, like, "Do your own research," you know, find out the truth for yourself, you know. And I don't think that, and you have to work hard at that. It, it's really a long process. And I I think that a lot of people are going to begin to start doing that. You know, to come up with some some truth that goes beyond the Frank Sinatra version of my way, you know, like
4: <laughs> <laughs>
3: to include, include others in this vision of their truth. You know, so I, that's how I kind of feel about it. I feel like, you know, have you ever seen the kind of things that QAnon has been putting out there? That these people claim to believe in that, you know, it's just so lame. I mean, you can't believe that people really go for this kind of stuff. So I think yeah. at a certain point, people are going to throw off this unfortunate belief in, um, and I'm not knocking conspiracy theories in a sense. I just feel like people are going to think more deeply about what's really going on and, like, you know, there's going to be a little light at the end of the tunnel here.
2: Well, let's hope that you're right, Mark. Thank you so much for <laughs> speaking with us. It's been yeah well, we'll we're trying to, to um, absorb your optimism.
3: Okay. I mean, uh, I wish you luck with that.
4: <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right. We've been speaking with I Mark. Can I
3: say something I thought I'd never be able to say in my whole life? Sure. Uh, please follow me on Instagram.
2: <laughs> <laughs> What's your handle, Mark? Pale Horse Rider Book.
1: Oh, all right. All right.
2: Thank you so much, Mark. It's really been a pleasure. Okay.
3: All right. Thank you. Thank
2: Take you, care. Mark. Bye.
1: Thank you. And congrats thank again you. on the
3: book. All right. Thank you again.
0: We've been speaking with Mark Jacobson, author of Pale Horse Rider, William Cooper, The Rise of Conspiracy and the Fall of Trust in America. Thanks for listening.
2: You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor in chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books.